Blog Talk Radio. The following broadcast is brought to you by the iGolf Sports Network. Golf Talk Live is sponsored by the iGolf Sports Network and Golf Tips Magazine. Here's Andrew to tell you more about our sponsors iGolf Sports is a live stream broadcast and media production company providing quality programming designed to attract the golfing enthusiast. And Golf Tips, the game's most in depth instruction magazine, including reviews on the latest equipment, tips from top teaching professionals, all designed to help you improve from tee to green. Welcome to Golf Talk Live with your host, Ted Odorico. Join Ted each week as he speaks with some of the best in golf. This week's special guest will join us a bit later. But first up is another great discussion on Coach's Corner. So let's introduce tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right, good evening, everybody, and once again, welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, of course, Ted Odorico, and I'm glad you could join us live uh, this evening, this Thursday evening, August 19th. It's hard to believe that we're uh, another month is slowly coming to an end here in just a, another week and a half, I guess. Uh, but I appreciate you guys joining uh, live. Uh, for those of you, obviously, that uh, are going to hear this a little bit later, just to remind everybody, we are live every Thursdays from 6 to 8 p.m. Central here on the blogtalkradio.com network. And, of course, you can go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash golftalklive and uh, tune in either live or you can go down and scroll down the page to the on-demand section, and you'll see all the previously aired shows there in their entirety, so you can listen to it when it's convenient for you. But for those of you tuning into live tonight, thank you very much as always, and we've got a great show for you tonight. I'm going to introduce the Coach's Corner panel, uh, as it mentioned uh, in the uh, opening uh, here in just a second, and then a little bit later on, I'm going to be joined once again by my very special guest, Wes Whittingham. He's the Vice President of Sales for Volvic USA. Uh, he's going to be joining me uh, talking about some of the new stuff that they got cooking over at Volvic, so we'll talk to him a little bit later on. All right, on the, tonight uh, on the panel, first up is John Decker. He's the Director of Instruction at the Medallion Club in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, he's also a Senior Editor at top, and Top 25 Instructor at Golf Tips Magazine. Uh, he was uh, Prior to that, he was a Head Instructor uh, previously at the Grand Cypress Academy of Golf in Orlando, and he was the 2015 Southern Ohio PGA, uh, excuse me, Teacher uh, of the Year. Uh, he's also author of uh, Golf is My Life, Glorifying God Through the Game, which, of course, includes a Bible study, and he's also a public speaker. Also joining the panel uh, from way across the pond, as they say, is uh, my good friend Jamie Leno-Zimron. She is a Class A LPJ teacher professional, a six-degree Aikido black belt. Uh, she's also a somatic uh, psychologist, a corporate speaker, and mind-body fitness and trainer. Uh, she also graduated uh, Phi Beta Kappa, uh, from Stanford University, and she's the creator of the Kiai Golf, the Centered Way. So, uh, Jamie and John, uh, welcome to Coach's Corner here on Golf Talk Live. Thank you, Ted. Thank you, Ted. It's always wonderful to be with you, and uh, happy to be with John, uh, too. Thank you. All right. Well, I appreciate it. All right. We're going to talk about, uh, this is something, there's actually two things we're going to talk about tonight. Um, the first one is something that actually... I talked about a little bit earlier this week on uh, the other show, Women of Golf, with uh, my good friend Cindy Miller. But I thought this would be a good discussion to have on uh, the Coach's Corner panel tonight, and that is uh, some ways to break 90 consistently. Everybody's trying to you know, break 100, trying to break 90, 80, what have you, uh, but 90 seems to be a tough one for a lot of people. 
And uh, I've got together some thoughts here, and I want to get to the, the panel's uh, input as well, because uh, I think this is an area that a lot of people, uh, you know, maybe they're in that, that category of, of between 90 and 100, and uh, they're consistently hitting the ball in, in, in that number, and they're trying to get below that 90 range into the 80s, which is what we, uh, the high handicappers try to strive through. So we're going to talk about that, and I put together the five shots you need. Uh, the first one is... Uh, John, I'm going to start with you, and maybe you can uh, expand on this a little bit more, but uh, let me just sort of lay it out, and then we'll, we'll get into the discussion. Uh, the first one is, I believe, is you need to pick a club, obviously, that goes straight at least 160 yards or more off the tee. Um, we'll use this club off the tee every single hole except for par threes when we might need another club. Uh, the 160 yards is the minimum, but essentially what you want is the longest club you can hit straight. Uh, and there's a reason for that, and John, you're going to explain that in a moment. So you want to select a club. I'm just going to lay this out for you uh, in your bag that you feel most comfortable with, that you can hit 160 more yards or, or more yards. Uh, the longer, of course, again, the better. Uh, and that can be a combination of fairway wood, uh, maybe it's a hybrid for you. It might be your driver or a five iron. Uh, so, John, there's a reason why I picked this, and I want to get your thoughts on this as well, because... I think a lot of people are very quick to pull out their driver. They're spraying it all over the golf course. Really what we want to do, if we want to get people consistently breaking 90, we've got to keep them in the fairway as much as possible. And I think this is a way to do it. What are your thoughts here? And maybe you can add to it as well. Well, first of all, thank you, Ted, for having me on the show. And, Jamie, I look forward to being on with you as well uh, tonight. Um, there's a, that's a great, great uh, point that you just brought up, Ted. Uh, it's important that you be able to get the ball in play. I always tell my students the number one objective to a tee shot um, on a par four or par five is getting the ball in play. That is our number one objective. And I think it's important to have a go-to club, uh, a club that you know that you can get in play, whether it be a hybrid, whether it be a fairway wood, um, or maybe you have two go-to clubs. But uh, depending on the situation, it doesn't always have to be the driver. Uh, so, so a lot of times, obviously, uh, people who are swinging uh, or shooting in the uh, 90s and trying to get into the 80s most likely are going to have some swing flaws, which is only going to get um, magnified as you go to the driver. Uh, and the most common of these is, is the slice or the shot to the right. That would be Probably that fits, uh, I would say, 75% of the people in that, 60 to 75% of the people in that category. So um, if you go to a driver and you've got a driver with 10 or 11 degrees or 12 degrees of loft on it and you're slicing it, um, it's going to be a lot easier if you can go to a hybrid or to a fairway wood and get the ball in play. And so not only do you want to have a go-to club that you can hit off the tee, but also ho hopefully use that off the fairway as well. And the five iron, um, I don't recommend a five iron for anyone who's shooting uh, in the, their scores are in the 90s or in really even in the 80s. I recommend a five hybrid. I think that um, mm -hmm. I think the longest iron that the average golfer should have in their bag uh, is a six iron. Because remember, the ma the manufacturers now are making these clubs stronger and longer, and um, and so um, the five iron is the four iron or even a three iron from, you know, 20 or 30 plus years ago, depending on the loft. Uh, some of these irons I see are really strong. And so I don't recommend, um, you know, I recommend the five hybrid over the five iron in that scenario. But, 
But it's a great point, Ted, because you do have to get the ball in play, and you have to have confidence because so much of of this is, you know, what I call your plan B club. So if you're not hitting the driver well or you get up on a hole and there's a lot of trouble, you have a club that you can go to that you know that you can get into play. And having that confidence, uh, you're going to have a much more aggressive swing if you're confident in what you're doing. Great point. And, Jamie, I'm going to get your thoughts on here, too, and I just want to add to it. You know, obviously, as, as John pointed out, and as I initially said, you know, your goal really here is to hit fairways off the tee uh, because, really, we're looking for bogeys here. I mean, uh, at the worst-case scenario, there's no need to hit the ball as far as possible necessarily every time. We just need to be able to hit those fairways with a decent enough distance to clear, you know, maybe there's some rough before we get to the fairway. Uh, with this tactic, again, we'll maybe typically make more bogeys, uh, along the way, but maybe a few pars as well. And this is a club that, again, depending on what you choose, it's reliable. Uh, it's a reliable shot shape for you, and it's something that you could hit uh, probably 90 95% of the time you're going to get it in the fairway. What are your thoughts here? Uh, maybe you might have some different suggestions. Um, I think having a go-to club like this that you know you're going to get at least – 150, even 160 yards, and keep it in the fairway, I think is a good way to start off in helping to break 90. What do you think? Well, uh, I very much agree that, um, you know, getting the ball in the fairway off the tee is getting in play, and really in the fairway is important because, you know, you're playing catch-up the whole hole when you start out in the rough uh, or, you know, in trouble. So, um, you know, you've really got to lean on a short game, which is another part I'm sure we'll get to, um, you know, in the course of this hour. But, yeah, getting off to a good start in the middle is uh, super important. Having a club that you feel confident with, um, as John said, so, you know, you can play aggressively and make a good swing and get the distance you need as well. Uh, I also agree that uh, for most players, especially in this range, um, having a five-iron hybrid, you know, having your irons uh, start maybe mm. at six iron is a good idea. Hybrids are just a lot easier to hit and to hit the sweet spot. So um, I'm just going to take this in the direction a little bit more of the sweet spot <laughs> because the sweet spot mm-hmm. is really about making centered contact. And when you make centered contact, you tend to hit the center of the fairway um, a lot more often. When we're hitting the ball off the heel, off the toe, uh, that's when the ball is going to be hooking, slicing, going here, going there, and you're going to miss the fairway. So, um, uh, you know, Ted, what I teach a lot is centered golfing, right? Tee golf, centered golf. And the basic uh, um, idea here is that we need to make center contact, hit that sweet spot of the club. That's when all the energy goes in the, in the ball the way it's supposed to. We get the optimal distance and direction. And the idea is that when we're centered, when we're in balance, from setup to our backswing, impact position, clearly square, center contact, and balance follow-through, we are going to tend to hit the ball straighter more often and make more consistent contact. So the idea is centered plus centered equals centered. (laughs) And most people tend to make centered contact really very much on a random basis. That's because they're lifting, they're swaying, they're falling off the ball, they're trying to kill it, hitting it so hard, they're falling back off their balance. And it's just so important to be in balance and be centered throughout the swing because centered plus centered is going to equal centered contact. That's when we're going to be in the fairway and be able to, you know, um, as you say, we're looking for bogeys here, right? <laughs> um, and that means 
you don't always have to be on the green in what we would call regulation, right? Regulation would really be, say, mm-hmm. uh, three shots on a par four, four shots on a par five. If you bogeyed every hole, you would shoot 90. And so that's another thing maybe we can talk about is kind of the mental, the mindset uh, when we start looking at par as bogey because then you're going to be able to shoot 86. is going to be, say, four under, which is I, I don't think most golfers should be comparing themselves to tour pros. I think that's where we kind of put ourselves also behind the eight ball right from the start mentally. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and some great uh, additional points there as well. Jamie, take a deep breath because I'm coming right back to you. I'm going to let you pick the, on the, the next topic here. Um, I'm going to let you start off here. And that's really, um, a, uh, you talked about the, the short game here, a solid pitching game inside 70 yards. This is point number two uh, to really helping to break 90. So I'm going to lay it out a little bit, and I'm going to let you uh, add your thoughts in here. So we're, so we're trying to avoid really those 30 to 70-yard pitch shots in the course as much as we can because they're kind of an in-between shot. Um, but inevitably, they're going to happen. You're going to be faced with that distance or somewhere in those distance. So it's it's really, I think, best to learn uh, to be able to play them because they'll save you three or four uh, easily more shots uh, per round. So selection of the club that you prefer to use in that, that range is really up to you. It could be a lob wedge, a gap wedge, sand wedge, or even a pitching wedge. Whatever you perform best with, um, you know, it, I think is, is, is best. And, and, you know, Dave Pels in his short game uh, schools has always talked about using uh, sort of the clock-based system where – however far he takes it back. So if he's taking it back, if you're assuming that the clock is uh, up, uh, your head is 12 o'clock, um, you know, he's going to, in the backswing, he's going to take it, let's say, to um, 4 o'clock, and then he's going to go through to 8 o'clock, the same equal distance. I want to get your thoughts on this, Jamie, because this is an area, again, these real short pitch shots. It's not a full pitch shot. It's a short pitch shot and kind of in between that 30 to 70 range. That's an area that you're inevitably, as I said, going to get faced with, and we really need to be able to dial into that. Maybe you can offer some tips on how people can hand that uh, and your thoughts on maybe selecting a, a specific club to use uh, and get comfortable with consistently. What are your thoughts? I really like your phrase, the pitching game, Ted. Because we think a lot about short game, uh, and a lot of times that means chipping. But the pitching mm-hmm. game, as you're saying, from say 70 yards in, for you know, for lower handicap golfers, we tend to focus on 100 yards in. But I think it's absolutely right for um, you know, um, not necessarily lower handicappers to think about 70 yards in, um, <clears throat> 70 and under. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad yardage uh, at all. Uh, and finding a club that works for you, whether that's what we used to call a sand wedge or a pitching wedge, a gap wedge, uh, whatever that is. And some people uh, prefer to hit kind of a lower shot that will bounce up on the green, and other people like to fly it. I think it's really worthwhile to learn how to make a, a fly a shot onto the green with a wedge that that you're comfortable with. So that's what I would recommend and really working on that because the pitching game, being able to get on the green from, um, she say 70 yards in or, or less. And, mm-hmm. uh, that is where, that's where that's that kind of bogey regulation, shall we say. And it's mm-hmm. important to be able to get on the green and get reasonably close to the pin so that you can at least two putt and maybe make a sink your putts for par, which in a certain sense would be a birdie 
if we're playing bogey golf, and that's 90, shooting 90. So uh, this is a very, very important shot. I wanted to say something about the clock image, um, mm-hmm. and I definitely agree with matching up the backswing and the, uh, the forward swing. But sometimes the clock doesn't work, that image. It, it all depends. For me, it turns out it didn't work. It doesn't work so well. My mind just, I don't know, doesn't get it. <laughs> but my mind, right. and, and just to offer this to people who maybe have a little trouble with that visualization, I love to use my body. So I may mm-hmm. take the club back ankle height to ankle height or mid-calf to mid-calf, knee to knee height, mid-thigh to mid-thigh, uh, hip to hip. Uh, shoulder to shoulder or, um, you know, so you see what I'm saying here? Um, So, you know, you can really use your body to kind of measure out, uh, meter that out. It's the same. It comes out the same. The principle is the same, but that may be a little more, uh, you know, easier, especially for um, sort of uh, sensate learners more than visual learners. Um, But the idea, Mm -hmm. and I uh, like to teach this to my students, is that every good shot adds up to 100. And what that means is that even back, even through, uh, even, mm-hmm. you know, 50-50. I like to think more about 45 back, 55 through. That means there's a, an acceleration on the way through, and that could be for a chip or um, a, a putt, a chip, a pitch shot, doesn't matter. Um, but, uh, you know, if you think about it, sometimes we'll take the club back, you know, uh, 80, and then we go, oh, no, that's too much, and completely desell. And then we go down right. to 40. Well, first of all, it's 120. But it's 80 right. 40. You know? Or we'll take it back 30 and go, oh, that's not enough. And this all happens kind of subconsciously. So we take back 30 or 40 and go, oh, man, I really got to come through. And then next thing you know, you come through at 90. Well, there's, you got 130, right? Or you've got 90, 70s. Mm. So it's like 100. It's crazy what people do. So it's really nice to start to practice metering that out at about a 45, 55, back, you know, 45 back or 48 back, 52 through. But have every good shot add up to 100 with a good ratio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a great point, and you're right. I mean, and, and, then uh, let the, obviously, and then also let the club do the work. I, I would just say let the club, and the loss of the club, it's built in on a wedge, uh, for example, so that the ball will uh, automatically roll up the club face and pop up into the air. And that's a shot that I think everybody needs, that kind of a pitch shot. I couldn't agree more. Uh, great analogy. John, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip over this for you because I think Jamie's pretty much laid it out for that, and I've got something a little bit different in mind for you. And that's uh, the next shot, if you will, or, or step, if you want to call it that, uh, number three, is really to pick your two favorite clubs from inside 150 yards. So what you want to do here is you want to find two clubs that you know you can hit on the green from 150 yards or less, just two of them. And the choice is really up to you know, the individual golfer, whatever you like most. So, uh, most. so as an example, uh, yours might be a pitching wedge where it's 120 to 130 yards and your gap wedge, which is 105 to 115 yards. It may be longer, maybe shorter. Uh, you may have different clubs. You're going to use these two clubs really for a final approach to the green. So, for instance, uh, you might have 240 yards to the green after you've hit that 160-yard-plus uh, shot off the tee to get you in the fairway. Well, you're not going to likely get that. Uh, most people are not going to be able to reach that, if they're, especially if they're having difficulties breaking 90 to begin with. So what you want to do now is you can break those distances into two shots. Uh, so you can break that 240 into two shots. So having two clubs to really make things solidified within that 150-yard range is really going to help you out. Maybe you can add a little bit to that. Maybe you can expand a little bit 
what are your thoughts here about doing that as well? I think this is an important step. I do. Uh, it's a great point, Ted, especially if you, uh, if you don't find the fairway. Uh, you know, if, you, if you're in the rough uh, off the tee, whether it's a fairway bunker or in the rough and you're, you're not in the fairway, um, you know, even a, gr- a really good player, uh, a scratch golfer or, um, you know, co- college player, high school players that I work with, I'm always stressing to them, let's break this down into two shots and let's break this down into where we're leaving ourselves on the second shot, our go-to yardage, that, you know, the go-to yardage that you have practiced on the driving range. And the key to this is you must practice on the driving range. You must have a yardage. Like when I was growing up, I loved 100 yards. That was my favorite yardage, and I practiced it all the time. Um, I would go down to our practice football field at our high school. I didn't have a driving range, so uh, my, my PE coach let me go down there, and I would hit balls on the practice driving range. And I got so good at 100 yards that if I was on a par five and I couldn't, and it was, you know, I was thinking about going forward in two, but there was some water up there. I said, you know what? I'm going to lay it up to 100. I love that yardage, and that was my go-to yardage. So for the average golfer, uh, and even the tour players, they have their go-to yardages with their wedges. So the average golfer needs to think of, you know, like like uh, Jamie was saying earlier, on a par four for the average golfer, a green in regulation for them is not two shots. It's three shots. So assuming we've got a drive out there that's, that we can advance the ball down the fairway, um, you need to look at the yardage and you need to break that down into two. So in the illustration that I was just saying, let's say that you hit a nice tee shot, and, but you're still 200 yards away. Um, so then what you do is you take out that 100-yard club, whether it's your 9-iron, your pitching wedge, your 8-iron. I always say I don't care what club it is. All I care is the fact that you can hit at that distance every time. And now you are 200 yards away. So in theory, if you hit that shot twice, you should be on the green and uh, you should be in a position to where you have an opportunity, you know, to, to make a, a par. Uh, um, and in your case, and for the average golfer, if they two-putt, that is their par. So uh, it's not a one-putt par. It would be two-putt, make your bogey. But for, if you're trying to break mm-hmm. 90, uh, that's going to go a long way. Bogeys are going to go a long way if you're trying to break 90 and getting you to reach your goal. Uh, and then, obviously, the lower you get as a player, the more you have to fine-tune that uh, and just gets, uh, you know, more and more uh, difficult. But it's, uh, it, it, you know, so much of breaking that barrier of 90 is the mental aspect that par is, you know, par is not, uh, if it says par four for the average golfer, it's going to be actually a par five or even a par six, depending on how high your mm-hmm. handicap is. Yeah, exactly. And a great way to sort of split that up. And that, that's really the idea is is it all becomes, uh, and we'll talk about this here in a little bit, but more becomes strategy, Jamie, than anything else out in the golf course. I think too many people uh, are too quick to pull out a, a club thinking I've got to get it way down there. I've got to you know hit it as far as I can. And a lot of times they can still achieve the goal they want to get by just playing smarter. Um, step number four or shot number four is obviously having <coughs> excuse me <coughs> pardon me a consistent two putt uh, and a solid short putt so as we know Jamie three putts are score killers uh, and I think everyone with a little practice uh, can at the very worst case near two putt every hole 
Uh, it's just a matter of some practice. So hitting the practice green after work or once or twice a week for maybe 20, 30 minutes uh, to an hour uh, for some that are really diligent uh, are certainly going to help uh, your score drop. What can we do? What, what are some ideas or some suggestions that you can think of to reduce that? Because we see so many players getting on these greens, and they're three-putting, some cases even four-putting on a regular basis. They might get there in two shots or even three shots to the green, but all of a sudden it, it falls you know, by the wayside. What can we do to be consistent two-putt and definitely work on a solid short putt? Jamie, your thoughts? Well, the good news is that everybody can putt, right? It's not a question of strength. It's not a question of age or size. We can all learn to be good putters, decent putters, two putters, one putters, yeah, and uh, and to avoid three putts. First of all, I think it's, as you said, appreciating that three putts are score killers and that, uh, you know, we really need to – two things to, to make more two putts. Number one is to get the ball on the green in a, you know, a closer range. Yeah. Uh, you can't be looking at 40, mm-hmm. 50 footers all the time. And, uh, and then the other is to uh, practice the shortcuts so that uh, shortcuts mean anything from the two and three, four footers so that we can feel confident in, in thinking those and uh, you know, to 10, 15 feet so that, you know, there are some one putts that, that, uh, you know, people can make. So, um, I, you know, what can we say? you got to practice, yeah? Um, you know, I'm a martial artist, mm-hmm. and I look at everything as, as practice or what we call training in the martial arts. Uh, and anybody will tell you, no matter what it is, whether it's in the arts, whether it's in business and speaking, in golfing, in any sport, you really can't get away from the need to practice. Now, a lot of people... Um, don't necessarily take that attitude and haven't learned how to enjoy practicing. So I think it's important to make practice interesting and fun. You can play games, uh, you know, with, with short game chips and putting. Uh, you can play games with yourself or with a friend, a family member, and, you know, chip the ball on the green and then practice putting and make those little competitive uh, games. Uh, and so, you know, I just think if you can make practice fun and also with putting, Putting is so easy to practice at home, and, uh, you know, we've been here in the pandemic. The idea is to really work on the smoothness and the evenness of the stroke. That's where you start to get consistency. And what I mean is what we were just talking about, back and through at an even pace, so that the putting stroke starts to become more like butter, right? Uh, Every good putter Mm -hmm. on tour will talk about the smoothness of their stroke. And um, that's just so important. And that comes about through consistent practice. First of all, you get centered. And I talk about with putting, use your shoes, yeah? Take the putter this far back outside the, the back foot shoe and this far forward and, and in front of the front foot shoe. When you start to meter that out from a place of center, now the stroke starts to gain some consistency. And I think it's important for mm-hmm. people to understand that how the, that there's two important factors in putting and, and throughout golf, which is D and D, distance and direction. And um, <clears throat> so in putting, it's about get, keeping the putter face square through contact and not letting, you know, your wrist break, your body move, your knees move, your head move. So it's getting that stillness. You can practice that at home and then metering out the stroke 
those things really, really help. And of course, you can have a, you always want to have a target. That could be the, you know, just the, the leg of a chair or your couch if you're at home practicing. And of course, when you're practicing on a putting green is, is the greatest thing. And to go to a practice green doesn't cost you a lot of money. Bring your own golf balls and just get out there and practice mm-hmm. and, and make it fun. Yeah, I couldn't but agree I more. About that's the, really... the fluidity, the, the consistency of the stroke. That's a, and understanding that the distance that a ball rolls in a putt is not about, quote, how far you hit it. It's about the size of your stroke. So longer back, longer through makes for uh, more distance. And so when you, when you get your stroke matched up with the speed of the green, then you start to have some control over your distance. Now you're getting control on your lag putts and you're getting your shorter putts uh, right there into the hole better. Yep, great point. Um, and, and I couldn't agree more. I think a lot of people really uh, sort of tend to stab at the golf ball when they get on the putting surface instead of having a nice, fluid, smooth stroke. Uh, John, on this one here, step number five or, or shot number five, uh, deals with one area we haven't talked about yet, and that is, of course, chipping. Uh, and, you know, I recommend for a lot of golfers – uh, some people may have a different approach to this, but picking one club to chip around the greens with. Um, select that club that you like to bump and run uh, chip with, uh, but that you want to be consistently getting onto the green and get it to roll up to the hole. Uh, too many, uh, especially high handicappers, they see the pros on TV, John hitting those flop shots or the lob shot. Very, very difficult and very inconsistent. Uh, even some of the best players in the world um, even though they're certainly much more consistent than the majority out there. Um, but if you're trying to break 90, uh, the last thing you want to be doing is sculling or fluffing too many of these. So I like to pick, and I recommend this. What are your thoughts here about maybe picking? It might be a pitching wedge. It could be a 9-iron, 8-iron, whatever you're comfortable with. What are your thoughts here about getting our high handicappers to maybe just dial in on one club that they can chip anywhere around the green with and be somewhat consistent each time? Well, I, um, Ted, as far as the chipping goes, I think it is the most undertaught and underpracticed shot that I see in golf. Uh, it's almost a lost art. A lot of it has to do with the way golf courses now are being built in America. But golf was originally designed to be played on the ground. And, uh, you know, keeping the ball lower on the ground and running the ball uh, is much easier uh, than trying to flop the ball up in the air. It's just I don't care. I've never seen anyone uh, try to flop it from the green. Uh, when you're on the green, they want to roll it. So if you're just off the green, why put the ball in the air? You would want to go with, with a, a shot that's lower. And, and you, learning to use different clubs. Now, I learned under Phil Rogers, and I, I will disagree a little bit. I'm not a big proponent of just using one club because that means you have to change your swing. I would rather change a club and not change my swing. So, for example, if I have a longer chip shot, uh, I'm going to use a six or seven iron. When I say longer, Maybe my ball is maybe a couple of yards off the green, and I have 40 or 50 or 60 feet of green to work with. That's where I'm going to go to some sort of 6-iron, 7-iron, 8-iron, depending on whether I'm going uphill or downhill. If I have a shorter or, or a medium-sized chip, so let's say I'm about 25 or 30 feet from the green, uh, for, or excuse me, from the pen, and I'm just right off the edge of the green, then I'm going to tend to go with maybe a 7-iron, 8-iron, 9-iron. And then if I'm closer, if I'm, my ball is right off the edge of the green uh, and I've got maybe uh, anywhere from 10 to 15 feet of green to work with, then I'm going with uh, a pitching wedge. But what I do is, so I've got kind of the short, the medium, and the long. 
I have a locked-in stroke. I basically take my 6-iron, 7-iron, whatever, pitching wedge, and I hold it like a putter, and I stand very close to the ball, and it's a very small up-and-down putting motion. I lean into my left side, feet are close together, lean into my left side, and make a putting motion. The ball is only in the air for a couple of feet, and when it hits the green, it rolls like a putt. And so once you have the swing locked in, then you just decide – you know, what club are you going to use? On a longer shot, you're going to use a six or seven iron, medium, you know, eight or nine, shorter pitching wedge. That's the same thing that we all do in golf anyway. If I'm farther from the green, I go with a longer club. If I'm shorter or closer to the green, I go with a more lofty club. So the concept, um, you know, of not being able to use different clubs, I think even for someone trying to break 90, I encourage you to, to do this. And, again, it goes back to what, what Jamie and I have been saying you know, earlier is you've got to practice this stuff. I mean, you can't just go out on the golf course and say, well, John said last night to use a 7-iron from you know, 60 feet, <laughs> and, and you're liable to knock that thing over the green and probably you know, get yourself in trouble. So you, you've got to at least practice this. So I don't want the viewers you know, calling in and, and complaining that I, get, I gave them you know, bad advice. So all of this advice has to be practiced. So it's important that you get a feel for it. But it's really a shot. We used to, when I was working at Grand Cypress, we had this shot in every one of our golf schools. And of all the shots, it was the one the students were able, all of them were able to do with just a little bit of practice. It's not, it doesn't take a lot of effort. And uh, it's just like putting, it's just putting with loft. Raymond Floyd described it as chipping as putting with a lofty club. You know, I agree with you, John. I mean, I personally, uh, I do the same thing, I think, when I teach is I do have them use different clubs. The reason why I, I took this approach for, for tonight's discussion is I think, though, sometimes, uh, again, our higher handicappers, are golfers that have a difficult time breaking 90, uh, typically are not very consistent. So what I like to do is to get them at least comfortable with one club first and work up to the others. Um, and, and the reason I, I agree with you, I mean, I typically might start them off with a pitching wedge, and then I'll show them how to de-loft it a little bit to get a similar reaction to those mid and longer uh, hits as well, so that they're not, um, you know, hitting it, popping it up in the air. But I do agree with you. I think using multiple clubs, I just find that with our higher handicap players, until they're really comfortable with the, you know, developing a, a good solid stroke that they can use and just change out clubs, um, I sometimes will default to a single club selection initially for a little while until they get comfortable with that, and then I'll work them into the others as well. But I do agree with you. I think that is a uh, a much more uh, sound way to, to develop that. Um, I just think for some of the uh, more challenged golfers, um, sometimes with just one club makes it a little bit easier and, and gets them in a comfort level, and then we can work from there. But I do agree with you overall. Um, so really what we want to do is, um, you know, with what we've been talking about here is really now to take on the, the various holes. So with our par threes, as I mentioned, these holes are – Certainly reachable uh, in one shot if you're playing uh, off the correct tees, of course. That's uh, first and foremost. Uh, and you should look at um, to be on or near the green on, on par threes. Be happy with bogeys here and be sure to get on the green in one or a maximum two shots. On some of the longer par threes, I would recommend look for a safe bailout area uh, where if you miss, you'll have an easy chip onto the green and then obviously, uh, you know, go from there. And again, don't be a hero and go for the green if you can't reach. Uh, a bogey is not a bad score. Again, we're just trying to break 90 at this point. 
par fours, it's the same thing. Uh, you know, again, you're, you're more of a target. You're wanting hitting the green in two shots. So as an example, if it's a very short par four, only 300 to 350 yards, you can hit it, again, using some of our analogies that we talked about earlier, uh, you know, you can hit that 160-yard uh, shot off the tee and then break it down into your other uh, shots just to get in. Same thing with the longer par four, uh, where it's maybe 450 yards. So again, um, the idea is what you want to do is you want to be able to develop a system that allows you to pay, play, whether it's a par three, par four, or par five, consistently keeping the ball in play. Too many people, as we've talked about here tonight, um, go the opposite route, and they're trying to hit it as far as they can down the fairway, not really worrying about where it's going, I'm trying to muscle it down there, and then they get into a myriad of problems. So these are just some guides that people can use. I truly believe that if you follow the steps that we talked about tonight, you're going to be able to see uh, some notable improvement, and you're going to get down to that uh, breaking that 90. And then once you do that, this is what I wanted to talk about. I said there were two things we are going to talk about. Here's, uh, I want to get each of your thoughts. Uh, I believe, Jamie, uh, it's your turn. Um, now we've broken 90 consistently. We're somewhere uh, in the 80s. The next big hurdle is breaking 80, and that's a whole different beast. We can certainly apply some of the things that we've talked about here, but what does it really take? This, I think, becomes more the mind game now than so much the physical game. What are your thoughts here when it comes to breaking 80? What do we got to do? I'm going to get to that in a minute. I'm just going to back up for a second. Um, uh, on the subject of what clubs to use, I have just had was going back to being a kid. And some of you may remember, all we had was a three, five, seven, nine iron and a sandwich. You guys remember that? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And we didn't have, we didn't have a four, six, eight iron and all these, you know, um, 56s and 60s and all that. <laughs> we just had those basic clubs. And, with those basic clubs, uh, I remember learning how to, as you say, kind of uh, add loft, be loft a club, a nine iron, a, a sand wedge, and uh, my seven iron, and all the shots that were needed. I think sometimes I think my short game was better when I was a kid. Number one, I was more fearless. Number two, I got a little <laughs> bit uh, crafty with just those clubs. You know what I mean? So um, mm-hmm. I think it's not such a bad idea to, to um, you know, think back on that and, and to um, – uh, get skilled in, in those basic kinds of skills uh, with a few clubs that we feel really confident with around the greens. And um, and I did just want to say, um, in terms of breaking 90, I think that it's very important for people to change their mindset, and, as we're mm-hmm. talking about, and have a strategy where they're thinking of bogey as par, because that comes out to 90 exactly, and it's par 72, and uh, mm-hmm. that way you give yourself uh, more birdie opportunities, which I think is very, very helpful mentally because it gives you a big boost. It's like, wow, you know, I, I made a birdie. And uh, if you get a double bogey, it's only a bogey. It's not the end of the world. Um, and it's also thinking of regulation differently, as you were saying. It's even two on a par three or three on a par four, four on a par five, plus two putts. So that change in mindset a lot of people have trouble making that change because they think somehow, I don't know, that it's blessed or whatever, but it makes a lot of sense because I, I don't know the exact numbers of people who don't even break 100, much less break 90. Um, so I think it's just we need to make that mindset shift. Um, in terms of 
getting down to breaking 80, that is a really big barrier. I mean, I think when anybody shoots in the 70s, uh, 78 or 79, you know, breaking 80 is just an amazing. It's like an Olympian feat, right? It feels incredible mm-hmm. when you break uh, 80 for the first time or uh, if you start breaking it consistently, it is something tremendous. So I think at that level, we are talking about people having more shots in the bag that they're comfortable with. So, for example, short game, um, as John was talking about, being able to have that sort of putt chip from just right around uh, off the green or on the fringe, um, being able to have a chip shot uh, from 10, 20 yards off the green and to short pins, median pins, long pins, and also having the pitch shot or the more lob kind of shot that goes up in the air. So uh, I think that it's essential that people uh, at, at that level have all those shots in the bag and uh, have a consistent ability to hit the green from 150 yards in and certainly from 100 yards in. Um, be able to make some one putts to get up and down is really, really important because, you know, you're going to have to save some of the times, uh, save yourself when, when you do miss the green, when you're not on in regulation. So I think those are some things that are really uh, very, very important and consistency is huge in terms of being able to um, break 80. I think it's also a mindset thing. Uh, oddly enough, um, you know, we, we always think about how uh, tough it is on us mentally when we start doing badly, but I think we all know that when we start doing really well, we almost freak ourselves out and we get nervous, <laughs> you know, and uh, you're thinking ahead and you're like, can I keep it up and all that kind of thing. So, you know, we get, uh, we get just as nervous when we're doing uh, really well as when we're doing really badly. So I think it's like, uh, it, it's a lot of fun in a certain sense, working on your ability to stay or to, to shift yourself into your um, sympathetic nervous system, meaning um, to be playing in that place of calm and balance and center is absolutely essential to be able to break 80. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and John, you know, as Jamie said, you know, again, it's a, it's a different mindset that we're, we're getting into. And, and a lot of folks, even when they start to do well, get very, very nervous, especially if they're not used to it. And um, sometimes the shots don't come through the way they'd like because they're, they're anxious, they're, you know, uh, developing a, a maybe a little bit of anxiety. What are your thoughts here? You know, we've, we've now gotten a player to, to consistently break 90, um, and that next hurdle for them is to obviously break 80. That's sort of the next uh, beast in the bag that they're trying to accomplish. Um, what are your thoughts here generally? And then do you have some tips that you would recommend uh, for those uh, that have now become a little bit more accomplished in their game that want to take it to that next level? What are your thoughts? Well, the, in my opinion, the fastest way to break 80 um, is, there, is you have to look at three areas. You have to look at driving, you have to look at, um, you have to look at your wedge game, and you have to look at putting. And if you're driving the ball, you know, 220 yards off the tee, uh, that puts a lot of pressure on you to be able to break 80. That's going to be tough to do. You've got to really have a fantastic short game. So you may need more distance. That could be equipment. That could be uh, working on your grip so that you're not, you know, losing distance with a, uh, you know, maybe you have a weak grip and your ball is fading off to the right and you're losing 15 or 20 yards. Uh, Maybe you don't have the right shaft in your driver. 
Uh, so that would be one of the things I would recommend, making sure that you have a driver. If you're going to invest any money in your equipment, uh, the driver is where you need to start first because that is, you've got to have something that you can get out there. The second thing is the wedges. You need to have good wedges. If you're going to break, eight, uh, break 80, you're going to need to have, uh, in my opinion, I think it's important to have four wedges. You need to have a pitching wedge, obviously, some sort of gap wedge, sand wedge, and a lob wedge, because I think it's important that you be able to handle all the shots inside of 100 yards. I never want a student to say to me, I don't have a club for this yardage, and I'm saying to them, you know, you're 75 yards from the green. You don't have a club? No, I don't have – I can't hit my lob wedge that far, and my sand wedge, uh, you know, goes too far, whatever is the situation. So, uh, Or maybe they don't have their wedges gapped properly. They have a – they have a gap wedge and they have a lob wedge, but they don't carry a sand wedge. So that I see that situation quite a bit. And then obviously you're putting. Uh, you know, you, you you know, I was always taught a three putt is a one shot penalty. So if if somebody came to me and said, I, John, I had, uh, you know, I shot uh, 85 and I had, you know, five one uh, five three putts, uh, that's like hitting five balls into the water. Uh, you know, and mm-hmm. if you hit five balls in the water, you should go to the driving range and work on your swing or take a lesson. But if you have five three putts, you need to go to the practice green. You need to work on your putting, getting your speed down. And the last thing, talking about mindset, I heard this uh, from it was either Tom Watson or Tom Kite, and he, they, they made the comment that they allowed themselves one double bogey per round. And any time they made a double bogey, they just would say to themselves, and you think about this, this is some of the best players in the world. They had the mindset, well, I know that I'll make two birdies. Well, if you're trying to break 80, you need to understand you're going to have a couple of bad holes. If you have one bad hole aside, if you t- say to yourself, I have, I'll allow myself one bad hole aside, all of a sudden it takes the pressure off so that when you get on the fourth or fifth hole and you have a little bit of a train wreck where the wheels fall off, you, you don't just panic and you don't go into, a, oh, well, this is going to happen the rest of the day. I'm done now. You say to yourself, there's my bad hole. I got rid of that one. I, now I've got three or four more holes left. Let's finish up strong. And then you have that bad hole that you kind of have in your back pocket for the back nine. Now, this is not something that is a swing tip or anything along those lines. It's a mindset that bad th- sometimes bad scores are going to happen, and when they do, you you just say, I was prepared for that. That was it. I knew that, you know, every now and then that's going to happen. It's not the end of the world, and I still have a lot of holes to, to make up for it because if you're going to break uh, 80, you are going to have to make some birdies. So you say to yourself, I had a double bogey on the fourth hole. I've got a lot of holes left. I can make one or two birdies over those holes, and I'll make up for that double bogey. So I think that those mm-hmm. are the types of things that I would look at to, to get to where you're shooting consistently in the 70s. You, but driving the ball, wedges, and putting is a must. Yeah, and, and the key word really is, guys, is consistent, um, you know, being consistent in, in what you're doing. And, you know, one of the things that we see with a lot of our high handicap golfers is a lot of inconsistency. And it's not so much in, in hitting the specific shots it's actually from round to round. Uh, I'll give you an example. You know, um, you know. Finally, they've broken a hundred this week, but then next week they're shooting 114, and then the week after that, maybe they've broken a hundred again, and it's back and forth, back and forth. Or there's a lot of cons- uh, inconsistency in their game, and they're unable, to, for the most part, to really identify 
the weak areas. I mean, yes, you know, they understand maybe they need to spruce up their putting a little bit, and they do that, but they really lack the ability um, to have the foresight to see where it is they're going wrong. And this is why, you know, and it's not just about, you know, lining our pockets. This is the reason why we recommend that you go and get lessons from a qualified professional because they're not only going to be able to help you with specific areas of your game, but they're also trained what to look for, what to see, and they can identify key areas in your game that you're struggling with. And I think the other thing, too, um, and I'm sure you, you probably both agree, uh, it's one thing we certainly have to go to the practice tee and, and practice green and work on these things. But more importantly, I think we need to get practice out on the golf course. So when we're with our instructors, we need to make sure that they're taking us out on the golf course and working on these different areas that we're struggling with uh, in a practice uh, lesson, uh, or playing lesson rather, than just going to the range and hitting balls. Because until you actually put it into practice and actually see how things are going to perform on the golf course, it's very difficult for them to take that game that they've been working on on the practice tee out on the golf course if they haven't been out there enough. Um, Final thoughts on breaking 90 or breaking 80. Jamie, I'm going to start with you and then John, and then we'll, we'll wrap things up. Uh, yeah, this has just been a really fun discussion. I could uh, keep going here. This is really fun. Um, I love what John said about a three-shot is a one-shot penalty. A uh, three-putt is a one-shot penalty. Uh, really true. Mm-hmm. And I'm also uh, reminded of hearing Dave Pell's talk. This was uh, 10 years ago or more at the PGA show. And he was talking about looking through uh, tour players' scorecards. And uh, they noticed that uh, it was kind of a serendipitous finding that there tends to be, even with the pros, a blow-up hole um, or two mm-hmm. even. And, you know, so being able to, um, uh, as John was talking about, either kind of account for that, sort of expect it in a certain way, um, and not fall apart around it, just go, okay, that one happened, and then, you know, the worst has happened, let it go. I actually remember when I played my PAT, those player aptitude test to get an LPGA, the very first hole I had, I double bogey. I was like, oh, my God, I'm two over after one hole. And I walked in the second mm-hmm. tee, I said to myself, you know what, the worst has happened. And I was, uh, I think I played one over the rest of that round. Um, so, you know, played, played just fine. Mm-hmm. It was like, let that go and know what's happened. But, um, you know, it's kind of uh, managing those blow-up holes. I remember once uh, seeing Lorena Ochoa when she was world number one on the LPGA Tour. She took an eight on the very first hole on Thursday, and she ended up winning the tournament with a record something like 24 under. Um, So, you know, you can come back, and we need to know that. Um, I think that, uh, again, I always emphasize uh, consistency and uh, accuracy are very, very important. So many people focus on distance. And you need a certain amount of distance, no question about it. Um, but consistency and accuracy, those come back to these principles about center, balance, practicing, moving your swing so that you know what you're doing. And that goes to, to your point about taking lessons. Um, I think mm-hmm. that another area we haven't talked about, and I've had a lot of fun teaching, um, you know, two, three-day golf schools, is um, trouble shots. Whole golf schools mm-hmm. on trouble shots. Um, so that, you know, you know what to do when you're kind of got to hit a low shot under a tree, uh, or even a sand shots, uh, fairway bunkers, uh, screenside bunkers, those are trouble shots for, for people. Um, and so, you know, having some kind of a, um, an ability to deal with that, you know, when you've got a, a bad lie is a trouble shot often, or your ball's right up against the, um, 
you know, the, the long grass off the fringe of the green. And it's like, well, what do you do? How do you play that? Um, so I think that people need to, uh, some more ability to, in breaking 80, um, for sure, breaking 90, to have some confidence and some experience and some teaching to play trouble shots. Um, and that mm-hmm. also helps to minimize the, or, or to uh, work with disaster management and minimize those blow-up holes. So um, those are, you know, uh, some some thoughts, I think. Um, it's a, it really, and again, just can't emphasize practice enough and learning to enjoy practicing. I know I used to hate practicing until I became a martial artist <laughs> and I appreciated what that was about. And then when I realized, oh, my God, there are so many fun ways to practice in golf. Absolutely on, uh, you know, at home, uh, on the driving range, putting green, so many ways you can create um, games and challenges for yourself. And I also agree with you and always love to get out on the golf course with my students. I think that playing lessons are essential. Yeah, I I agree 100%. Uh, and some great final thoughts. Uh, John, what about you? I mean, you know, we're we're trying to help people get over some barriers here tonight. And, you know, we've given them, I think, some sound advice and for some things for certainly to think about. Uh, what are your final closing thoughts as far as helping them to get over that hurdle of breaking 90 and, and even uh, a little bit further breaking 80? Uh, what are your final thoughts here? Well, one of the things that I recommend to all my students is that they keep their stats. Um, you know, that is a very important uh, in breaking these barriers uh, because um, sometimes we look at um, our golf games uh, with, uh, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, oh, I, you know, I have a really good short game or I'm a good putter, and then I'll go out with them on the golf course, and I think to myself, you're really not a good putter. You really don't have a good short game. You're not nearly as good as you could be. So what, the only way that you can really have these eye-opening moments, these aha moments that we all are, are looking for, is through keeping your stats. And the first thing that you need to do is just go after you're done. Don't worry about doing this during the round, but after the round is over, just see how many fairways you hit. If you hit it in the fairway, you give yourself a check, even if it only went 100 yards. If it's in the fairway, it's in the fairway. If it's in the rough, it's it's not a fairways hit. Then you look at your greens and regulation. Now, if you're trying to break 90, put your greens and regulation on a par 3 at two shots, on a par 4 and three shots, and a par 5 in four shots. If you're trying to break, you know, if you're shooting in the 80s and trying to break 80, obviously you need to do it the the way that the tour players do it. Look at your greens and regulation. See how many up and down. Uh, do your up and down percentage, um, you know, and try. I always try to get students to have a goal of 50%. So if you miss the green in regulation, if you can get up and down 50% of the time, that's a good start. Uh, and then count your putts. And like I said, a three putt is a one shot penalty. My number one goal anytime I tee the ball, tee it up. My number one goal is not to three putt. My number one goal, because I don't care how poorly I'm playing, if I'm a good putter, I can still roll the ball up there. I can still manage and get the best score possible by being a good putter. If if the average golfer would take five minutes after their round and just sit down and do that, you, you would start seeing, wow, I didn't hit, you know, I only hit one fairway in nine holes, or um, wow, I had 42 putts or something like that. You start realizing where you need to put your practice time. And I look at the scorecard like I do my bank account. If I see money going out 
in an area and it's going out really fast, I pay attention to that. Well, you have to think of your shots like money. And so if you look at your shots and say, wow, I've got a lot of putts, I guarantee you if it was really real money, you would go get a putting lesson. And I would encourage you, whatever your weakest point is, to either, number one, I would suggest that you go to your local PGA or LPGA golf professional and you get a lesson uh, in that area. So you go to them and say, the other day I played and I had a lot of putts and, and I want to work on that. Uh, and if, if you're not going to do the lesson, then at least put your practice time. But if you organize what practice time you have towards your weaknesses and not your strengths, don't go out there and just work on what you like to do. You know, if you, I see our guys who can hit the driver a mile, but they can't, they can't score. Don't work on your driver. Go work on your, your short game. And if you do that, that's how you lower your scores. It's not by um, – it's treating your golf game like it's a business. And if you treat it like it's a business, you can't help but get better. Yeah, add some excellent points as well to, to wrap things up. And and you're exactly right. You know, I mean, you know, you want to warm up with, with some of your better shots for sure. You want to keep those tuned up. Uh, you don't want them falling by the wayside. But, again, you're you're exactly right. We see too many golfers going out there spending the majority of their time on areas of the game that they're already very proficient at and, and not really focusing on the, the areas that they're not so good at. And a lot of it is, again, it's an anxiety, I think, that develops there, you know, and, and you know, as, as both you and Jamie have alluded to, is you want to make it fun, uh, make it enjoyable, make some, you know, think up some different games and scenarios. And if you're not sure, there's lots of things you can go online lots of ways. Or if you're working with, a, uh, you know, your local golf professional, they can help you put together some fun ways of, of making uh, your practice a little bit more enjoyable. Um, guys did a great job. I think it was an interesting discussion, and hopefully – uh, the folks tuning in tonight will have had a better understanding of what they need to do or some ideas anyways uh, of breaking 90 and even taking it further and breaking 80. Um, as always, I'm going to give each of you a chance to uh, just let the folks know if they want to reach out, the best way to do that. So, uh, John, I'm going to go with you and then Jamie. Well, once again, Ted, uh, thank you for having us on the show and giving us this platform. And, Jamie, as always, I, I enjoy being on, with, being on the show tonight with you. Uh, for the listeners out there, if you want to reach me on social media, you can go under John Decker Golf Instruction, uh, and I spell um, my first name J-O-N, so John Decker Golf Instruction. I'm on, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or LinkedIn. Um, I, as uh, you mentioned earlier, I'm a um, senior editor with Golf Tips Magazine, so I have instructional articles coming out with the magazine as, as well as my faith-based article fairways to heaven and i for all the listeners out there i really recommend that you uh subscribe to the magazine and it's a great magazine and ted you've done a fantastic job with it uh, if you're interested in my book my book is titled golf is my life glorifying god through the game uh it's, you can get it on amazon uh barnes and noble and walmart.com if you're interested i've had several people uh, who have contacted me about getting autographed uh copies you can reach out to me on social media, and I'll be glad to do that as well. And I also, now now that we're post-COVID, I'm doing uh, back to public speaking. And, in fact, I just spoke, uh, I just did a speaking engagement last week uh, in Springfield, Ohio. But I can come to your uh, venue, I can do golf instruction, uh, and I can speak to the group as, as well. So if you're interested in that, please reach out. But uh, once again, uh, thanks again, Ted and Jamie, and uh, I hope you guys all have a, I hope you guys both have a great weekend. All right. Thank you, as always, John. Jamie, what about you? Best way that they can reach you? and, and um... Yeah, well, um, 
best way to reach me is through my website, which is thecenteredway.com. It's the, T-H-E, centered, E-D, thecenteredway.com, or kiigolf.com, K-I-A-I-Golf.com. Takes you to the same place, uh, and that is uh, really easy to do. And <clears throat> Also, uh, while I'm here in Israel, I'm doing a lot of work on Zoom, as you can imagine, so uh, doing a lot of virtual teaching and uh, speaking, even corporate speaking. Uh, I do a lot of peak performance work and working with stress, working with uh, developing that sense of center, balance, ground, mental clarity, uh, mental focus, uh, self-mastery, self uh, to master what, what we're doing here on the golf course, and, um, and golfers at every level. So it's really been fun doing um, virtual lessons and to be able to work with people from here. So, um, yeah, right now my phone isn't working from the States. If anybody's got WhatsApp, it's <laughs> plus one seven six zero four nine two four six five three. So, um, yeah, I really am very much enjoying staying connected over here. Uh, appreciate being on the show. This was a tremendous discussion, and I think it's so important, everything that we've talked about today, for people to reach their next goals. And I think it's applicable at every level. So thank you uh, very much for that opportunity. And, uh, yeah, I really do look forward to uh, hearing from people. The other I should just mention would be email. So Jamie, J-M-I-E, at kiigolf.com, K-I-A-I-Golf.com. Perfect. Jamie, thank you. John, as well, for joining me uh, this evening on a great discussion on Coach's Corner. Uh, go get some rest, Jamie. I know it's uh, wee hours of the morning for you over there. Thank you both very, very much, and I look forward to you joining me again next time here on the Coach's Corner panel on Golf Talk Live. Have a great weekend, guys. Thank you, Taylor. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Uh, we will be joined by our very special guest, Wes Whittingham, here uh, in just a moment, and uh, we're going to take a quick message break and then we'll be right back with our special guest this edition of golf talk live is brought to you by golf pal the best place to find only the finest in golf training aids and accessories get in on some great deals on leading products such as down underboard rough soto golf slingshot and more visit golfpal.golf today and don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter golf pal we're serious about your game the following ad is sponsored by Golf Tips Magazine. Are you tired of being short off the tee? And what about those three putts? Forget about it. It's time you got serious about your game. Golf Tips, the most in-depth magazine in the industry. For over 30 years, Golf Tips has delivered expert content such as the latest golf instruction from America's top pros, simple to follow practice and game improvement drills, fitness and mental game tips, Equipment, training aids, accessory, and apparel reviews. Golf destinations and travel tips for every budget. And so much more. Don't miss a single issue. Go to GolfTipsMag.com and subscribe today. All right. Uh, once again, thank you, everybody, for joining me tonight on Golf Talk Live. I'm very, very excited to have this gentleman back on. He was on a little earlier in the year. Uh, we had a great discussion then, and I know we're going to have a great discussion tonight. Of course, I'm talking about Wes Whittingham. He is the Vice President of Sales for Volvic USA. Uh, Wes's career includes 40 years in the golf industry, in the on-course and off-course retail, OEM, and overseas manufacturing arenas. Uh, he has product uh, category experience in footwear, apparel, clubs, balls, and accessories. Uh, he has been senior management positions with Ram Golf, uh, Head uh, Sports, Olimar, uh, Floresheim, Bridgestone Golf, and of course, Volvic USA. 
uh, resides in Atlanta, Georgia, holds a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in organizational management. So please welcome back my very special guest, Wes Whittingham from Volvic USA. Good evening, Wes. Welcome. Well, thank you, Ted. I appreciate you having me on. Well, I'm glad to have you come back. It's always uh, nice chatting with you, and uh, we're going to talk about a number of different things uh, here tonight. So um, I've already told everybody a little bit about yourself, but one thing I want to do just for for some of the new listeners, um, I asked you this question last time. I'm going to start off with this one again. Just talk about a little bit how you got into golf, because it's always interesting to hear everybody's journey on how they got into golf, Um, many, of course, at a very early age, and what was your appeal, and, and when did you first sort of uh, get interested in, in the game? Sure. Well, uh, I owe it all to an uncle way back when. I was like a lot of kids uh, back in my era that played team sports. So I was uh, football, wrestling, baseball, basketball, you name it. I played in all those types of things, and uh my uncle played some golf. I caddied for him a couple of times, and uh, he took me out to the driving range and uh, got me hooked. It was, you know, because it was uh, one of those unique aspects where, you know, I think it's uh, the same for a lot of your listeners. The first time you hit a flush shot mm-hmm. and it goes straight mm-hmm. and you want to do it again, and you can't, mm. and then you just, you know, you keep trying and working at it, and and that's how that's how I got hooked on golf, and so my my mom got me some lessons, and, you know, I had the proverbial Spalding uh, starter set in a box, yep. and went out mm-hmm. and uh, got lessons, and then, uh, you know, I really, uh, I really didn't play all that much but uh what what happened was is that you know ted i was lousy at baseball and so wrestling Mm. season had just ended it was my first year of high school uh so i played football played wrestling i was looking for a spring sport uh probably one of my closest friends you know he and i were talking and i said so what are you going to do this spring he's like i'm going to go out for the golf team i'm like you're going to go out you're not going to go out for baseball i said no i'm going to go out for the golf team and uh, so it was just a simple, so what do they do? You know, do they have to lift weights? Do they have to run? You know, I mean, is there anything associated <laughs> to physical activity, uh, you know, like football and wrestling? He says, no, I don't think so. He says, I think all you got to do is just go out and play golf. I'm like, sign me up. And uh, so I went out for the freshman <laughs> golf team with my buddy. We made the uh, the JV squad. And... Uh, you know, ultimately, I played uh, uh, all through high school and then into college. And uh, after that, you know, continued to play in some amateur events, et cetera, uh, and uh, have loved the game ever since. You know, it's interesting. There's so many people that share very similar story uh, to your to yours. And, and that's why I like to ask it, because, you know, everybody's journey has, has been different. And as you pointed out, the one interesting, th- really interesting thing about this game is no matter what level you're at, whether you're a beginner or whether you're a seasoned player, when you hit that well-struck shot, there's no better feeling. It's just, it, it's almost like a euphoria. And especially, obviously, right. for the beginning golfers, 
that sort of plant. It's like planting a seed, you know, and watching it grow. And uh, it, it's almost impossible. I, I've seen some players over the years, some beginning golfers that are just atrocious. And you'd think that, you know, they're going to drive the golf cart into the pond. They're throwing the clubs in the pond. <laughs> they, they never want to see that game again. Right. And you get them out in the practice tee, and they'll hit that one beautiful shot that just seems to go forever. And it's like, okay, let's go play again. And well, Pat, it's just, I, listen, I've never, I, right? <laughs> well, go right, ahead. exactly. But, you know, how about for the seasoned player, you know, you could go out and you could have absolutely one of the worst rounds of your life, but how many of us, and right now mm-hmm. I guarantee you that everybody that's listening to your show is raising their hand when I say this next line, and that is mm-hmm. somehow miraculously you hit your best drive of the day on the 18th hole. And it's just like <laughs> you you automatically forget about all the, the you know slices yeah. off into the trees or the duck hooks or whatever, and you just remember that you know flush drive right down the middle of the 18th fairway, or maybe knocking in that 20 foot curler on the last green, and you're just right. like, when are we you know when are we teeing it up again? But but you know that's that's the beauty of the game, and and that's what drives people back and. I, listen, I, I'm a guy who's played the game, and somebody asked me this the other day, how long have you been playing golf? And I actually had to stop and think for a second. You know, right. at first I was going to say, well, I've probably played 35, 40 years, and then all of a sudden it dawned on me. I've played over 50 years uh, of playing the game. But uh, I'm getting lessons right now from a great young right. golf professional locally. And uh, he and I were talking, and, and I said, you know, so where do you focus on? Do you focus with seasoned players, lower handicap players, juniors? I mean, what, what, do you, what do you enjoy as a teacher? And he was saying, well, you know, I love, I love working basically with everybody. And I said, you know, I've got to think for you, teaching professional, the most difficult mm-hmm. thing is getting a new student to hit that first flush shot with whatever it is. And he... Yep. Hands down, agreed. He said, "Oh, he said, listen." And he, and he said, "The euphoria after they do that, where they're mm-hmm. facing the target and they're just like looking at the ball, you know, up in the air." He said, "It's like wonderment in their eyes uh, after they hit that shot." So it's, it's a cool thing, and and you're absolutely 100% correct. That's what really drives everybody. Uh, back to the golf course or back to the range, and, and uh, that's when you really know you get hooked. You know, it's it's funny that you mention that because, you know, one of the interesting things, you know, when as a teacher professional, a lot of times, of course, um, you get out on the course with playing lessons, but you're also obviously spend a lot of time on the practice range and so forth. And, you know, you'll see somebody out on the golf course that is just having a horrendous round of golf. Every hole you you see them at, they're just struggling, struggling, struggling. And you get back to to the clubhouse and you're, you know, having a a drink or you're having a a bite to eat. And the one thing that player that you've witnessed for the last, you know, couple of hours out in the golf course will be talking about, like you said, that one well-struck shot or that putt that curled in, you know, 20, 30, 40 feet, and that's all they're talking about. Um, now, right. obviously not everybody does that, but they're talking about that, and it's just the, the, and the passion, and you're thinking to yourself, man, I just watched you for two and a half hours, you know, struggling in the heat and having a terrible round, 
But, you know, you've got to give credit to them because for somebody like that, because even though they've had a, a, a horrific round, they're focusing on the positives of that round. And that's really key, I think, for uh, as a golf instructor is to get your students to really focus on the positive parts of their game and not dwell on the negative parts of their game. And I always equate this to going to the airport. When I see students coming in and they're sort of slumped over and they're dragging, I always, it's like dragging your baggage to the airport. It's like, you know, you leave your baggage, you check it in, right. and then right. you go and wait for your flight. No, there's some people that will drag it all the way around. They drag it to every hole, to every shot they go, and it's every bad shot they hit for the last, you know, five rounds or the last, you know, couple of hours or what have you, or the last you know, two or three holes that they didn't play very well. And it's hard to get them to unload that baggage. So it's nice to hear, even when somebody's had a bad round, them talking about the good shots that they hit. So um, very interesting, and thank you for sharing uh, uh, some of your journey as well. All right, so let's talk about Volvic. We've, uh, I know we've touched on a lot of things the last time, but uh, before we get into what's, what's new and, and what's coming up, um, Volvic obviously is known for a couple of things. Uh, it's not just known for uh, colored balls. You guys have some great product out there, uh, but also for the performance and quality uh, um, throughout a variety of their products. What goes into developing a product that has helped you guys be able to achieve those various things? That's a great question, Ted. And, and you know, I'll tell you what, uh, it's the behind-the-scenes effort of the engineers that uh, really is what creates the stake uh, behind the sizzle. You know, everybody loves to mm -hmm. talk about the sizzle, packaging, the colors, everything else, but, you know, a color golf ball, whether it's a matte finish or glossy finish or whatever the product might be, uh, simply won't sell if it doesn't perform. Every product has to perform. We all know that. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's yep. the engineers in the background that are, you know, in development, sometimes for two, three, four years, and they're, they're tweaking existing patents or designs or they're creating a completely new material. Uh, from scratch, things of that nature. And so, you know, before any any of our products go to market, uh, it, we do a tremendous amount of uh, testing. There's a lot of scrutiny, of course, with, you know, in the golf ball side, there is in every product category, but just within the framework of golf balls, you know, the United States Golf Association, uh, God bless them, you know, puts a, a governor on all, golf ball manufacturers, right? And so, you know, there's a mm -hmm. very specific um, velocity that a ball can go uh, over a fixed period distance-wise. And if it exceeds that, then it's deemed non-conforming. And if it's non-conforming, then it's a golf ball that, you know, typically we're not, certainly we're not going to take the market, but but if we did take it to market, like our Magma golf ball, which is uh, a little bit uh, smaller, a little bit heavier uh, than the USGA conforming, you know, we have to note it or denote it as such on the packaging itself. But, you know, besides the Magma product, which we, we intentionally put out there as a distance product, as a non-conforming distance product, uh, all of our other products are conforming. And, you know, so really what it comes down to with golf balls today is 
aerodynamically, how long can you keep a golf ball in the air and how straight the ball will go? Because the straighter a golf ball goes and the longer it's in the air, the farther it will go. And so those Mm -hmm. are really the two key principles uh, at the end of the day. You know, if you want to just distill it down to, to that, that's really what creates or amplifies uh, where we want to take a golf ball is to make sure that we can keep it in the air as long as we possibly can and to keep it as straight as possible while still making a conforming product. And so, you know, whether it's a four-piece golf ball, a three-piece golf ball, two-piece golf ball, whatever, whatever the number of layers is, uh, you know, that testing, that criteria, the materials that are put into it, uh, really uh, the final output or the final equation uh, that's what we want to achieve. So let me ask you, let's go back, and we're not going to go back to the beginning of time because that, that we don't have enough time here to do that. But, um, you know, I remember, and as I'm sure you do, uh, early on in, in our golfing life, we had the Bellotta balls. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, right. then things started to progress. And I remember, you know, seeing some of the old golf balls, and if you peeled off the cover, if you had one that had, had a slice <laughs> or a nick in it, and you pulled it apart, Sure. You had these rubber, this rubber, rubber band. band that was wrapped around this little right. ball. Um, you know, that's not like that anymore, obviously. Um, there's a lot of different uh, other technologies. So, you know, you mentioned, you know, whether it has three or four layers. Maybe talk, I mean, you don't have to get into specifics because I know there's maybe some trade secrets and whatnot that you don't want to dispel. But, sure. uh, but talk about really what changes have been made in the golf ball from, from that early time, uh, again, to where we are today? Why is there so many layers in the ball? And maybe you can talk a little bit about what some of the layers do, what their function is. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, we see on the marketplace today everything from uh, a two-piece golf ball uh, to a five-layer golf ball. Uh, you know, TaylorMade, for example, has a product out that's a five-layer golf ball. We make uh, a series of products in our urethane line called the Tour S4 and the Tour S3. The S4 obviously is a four-layer uh, golf ball. The S3 is a three-layer golf ball. All of our, you know, our, our uh, I'm just going to call it the number one matte finish golf ball in, in uh, uh, the world right now, the Vivid, is a three-piece uh, golf ball. And typically what happens, most manufacturers, of course, have gotten away from Bellotta and gone to urethane. Uh, mm-hmm. The other material, the other common outer layer material or cover material that's made is Serlin or ionomer Serlin. And so uh, what happens with these layers is the, the first thing you start with is the engine of the golf ball. And, uh, the, you know, the hemi, so to speak, is the core. And so... Mm-hmm. Uh, Around the core, typically manufacturers will create a thin mantle layer. And then after that, they may add another thinner mantle layer and then ultimately the cover. But the core, when we go back to the engine, that's really what creates the uh, uh, velocity, if you will, of the golf ball. That's what uh, deforms at impact especially with a driver, because typically people will swing a driver with the highest amount of clubhead speed and create the greatest amount of deformation of a golf ball. So it actually, the ball will actually become somewhat egg-shaped 
Uh, and even though mm-hmm. when you tee it up and when you go out, hopefully into the fairway and you are preparing to hit your second shot, it'll look perfectly round and you'll never know that that ball actually deformed uh, into an egg shape. But that's exactly what happens at impact. And quite frankly, the more you can deform it, of course, to a specific amount, uh, the, when the ball comes back to round to its original shape, that's where you achieve maximum ball velocity. So every type of player, uh, male, female, uh, junior, senior, uh, whether it's a club head speed of 60 miles per hour or a club head speed of 120 miles per hour, achieves some level okay, of deformation and creates some level of ball velocity. And so, uh, you know, again, the core is the engine. The mantle layers typically will create a benefit to the player in the form of either uh, uh, reducing the amount of spin, for example, and typically that's in Mm -hmm. side spin, uh, and also it, it is another layer that acts as kind of a, a part of the energy driven behind the golf ball. Now, the cover material that we select or the player selects, more importantly, if they want to get fit for a golf ball, if they select a urethane golf ball, urethane will spin more than a Serlin-covered golf ball. And the reason why urethane spins more is just the uh, type of material itself. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. The, the thinner you make a cover, the softer the ball will feel, you know, obviously to a, uh, to a certain extent. You know, we can't, we can't thin it down to, like, paper. But ultimately, the thinner the cover uh, the softer the ball will feel. The other thing is is that urethane balls will spin more and have a softer feel and a slightly different sound than Serlin. So when you're out on the putting green and if you put down some urethane golf balls next to some Serlin-covered golf balls, uh, they could both be, for example, three-piece golf balls. But the Serlin golf ball is going to sound differently than the urethane ball. And so where does spin become your friend? Spin becomes your friend, especially for mid to low handicappers around the green. Uh, You know, they're going to be able to control their approach shots into the green more precisely. Uh, They'll have minimal uh, dispersion uh, in terms of that shot going into the green and then hitting and stopping. Um, whereas Serlin, because of the material itself, doesn't spin quite as much, and so there isn't the same level of stopping power. And, you know, you're, you're going to have players that, uh, uh, especially mid to low handicap players, that can definitely see a uh, significant benefit playing a urethane cover versus a Serlin cover. Uh, players that are mid to higher handicap players or with less skill sets uh, of of some of these better players, they're not going to notice really any difference at all in terms of the feel 
or perhaps even the spin. But everybody, mm-hmm. I guarantee you, if they're out on the putting green and they're uh, practicing with serlin and urethane side by side, they'll definitely hear and feel a little bit a difference between those two cover materials. But typically what we're seeing is is that, you know, whether they're, they're um, the LPGA players that are playing right now in the AIG uh, Women's uh, Open Championship in Scotland at Carnoustie, or whether it's uh, mm-hmm. a PGA Tour player right now that's playing in the FedEx uh, out in uh, New Jersey, uh, all those players, I guarantee you, are playing some level of a urethane-covered uh, product, so they have that precise control, especially uh, going into uh, their shots into the greens and, and chipping and putting around the greens. You know, it's interesting, um, you know, when, when you explain the, the differences between the types of balls and how they react and obviously the level of player um, that can take advantage of the differences. You know, a lot of people say, well, why is there so many different golf balls? Well, each of them, uh, obviously there's a number of reasons, but primarily there's uh, uh, how they perform under certain circumstances and conditions and obviously the level of play uh, or player Mm -hmm. uh, can dictate. And and that's uh, So it it brings me to a question, and the fact that you mentioned about over in Europe as an example, uh, typically, uh, you know, depending on the time of year, it tends to be a little bit cooler uh, than what we might have here right. in sunny Florida. Uh, so, right. you know, uh, the climate becomes involved. So talk about a little bit about that. You know, if you're playing in a warmer climate, let's say like Florida in the summer where mm-hmm. it's, you know, mm-hmm. 90, 100 plus, um, sure. what ball you play is also going to be a factor as well, correct? Uh, no doubt, you know, and, and what people will notice, uh, especially like in, in climates where the humidity may be, uh, a little bit higher, and so you know I live in Georgia, and certainly you know we've had that same type of mm-hmm. scenario where we get yep. a lot of rain and heats up during the day, and uh, so you would think, okay, the the a person just kind of logically thinking would say, okay, when it's humid out and there's really not much wind, the ball's probably not going to go anywhere because you know the air just feels heavy, right, and. Uh, when it's a little cooler, like if it's in the 60s or, or perhaps low 70s, and it's crisper out, I bet the ball will go farther then. And like everything else in golf, uh, whatever you think logically, if you peel around 180 degrees and, and go the opposite direction, that's the right way with the, uh, the game of golf. So because of the energy that is in the air, okay, the Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, especially under humid conditions and when it's hot, that's when a ball performs at its peak, and that's when the ball's actually going to stay in the air longer. You're going to hit it farther, and that's where all players will achieve um, probably their longest tee shots. They'll probably be hitting it, you know, at maybe a half a club longer uh, with some of their iron shots, things of that nature. But they're, they're going to see the ball definitely fly farther because it's warm, there's a lot of energy in the air, and that energy creates more lift, okay, with the golf ball. Conversely, when it's cool, uh, 
typically what's going to happen is is that the ball's not going to stay in the air as long. There's not as much energy maintaining the aerodynamics of the ball. There's not as much lift. And so the ball is going to, I don't want to say fall out of the sky, but it's, it's just not going to stay in the air as long. Spin, remember, you know, a lot of times that four-letter word gets kind of a bad, rapid golf, you know, because everybody <laughs> talks about right. high launch, low spin, right, off the driver. But mm. for a lot of players, right. you want spin, okay? You, you don't mm-hmm. want to go out and just hit a golf ball with no spin because it's not going to go anywhere. What you want is, right. you know, even, even these tour players that are hitting at 350 yards, typically they're going to spin it around 2,600 RPM, okay? And that's really uh, kind of a baseline for most of these guys. And so, you know, that's, uh, th- that's what you really want to achieve in terms of the differences and how climate affects uh, the performance of a golf ball. Well, and, and also even that, elevation. That point, you yeah, see, sorry, go ahead. It, I, you took the word right out of my mouth because that's exactly – I used to live in Colorado, and I'll never forget. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the, the, the very first things I learned when I lived in Colorado was the longer it's in the air, the farther it's going to go. And mm-hmm. so typically people um, – you know, I grew up in Chicago, and the typical loft on a driver might be nine and a half degrees. And it was just, you know, everything was Parkland. Um, you know, we, we were at relatively low <laughs> elevations. I move out to Colorado. Right. Everybody's hitting a 12-degree driver. They're launching it up into the sky. It's hanging out there forever. And, again, uh, the longer it's in the air, the farther it's going to go. So elevation absolutely uh, has an impact on, uh, on how a golf ball performs. So let's leave the pros aside for a second, and let's talk about our amateur golfers, because this is where a lot of them get confused. You, I know you've mentioned a lot of the, the factors and a lot of the things that they do, but when, you know, we always hear about, well, you need to get fitted for the proper clubs and so on and so forth, but you really need to get fitted for a golf mm-hmm. ball, too. So for a mm-hmm. high handicapper, let's say we'll take a, um, a, a 20 uh, or 25-plus handicap they don't need to be playing sure. uh, a, a tour quality ball or, or something along that line. How do they get fitted for something? What, what are the things that they should be looking for? Sure. So, you know, I think the, the very first thing that people have to um, address is, uh, you know, what, what are their expectations in terms of uh, what they want to achieve out on the golf course? So, you know, if you're that 20, 25 handicapper, you know, Typically, most players want something that's durable, something that they can find or they can hit relatively straight, and uh, that they can reasonably get it up in the air pretty consistently. So, you know, number one, uh, I, I, think, I think one of the criteria that most players really don't think about when they're purchasing golf balls, but it is, again, a keynote behind Volvic, and that is, the visual. How well do you mm-hmm. see the golf ball that you're playing? Obviously, yep. you're going to see a color golf ball better than you will see a white golf ball. That's a fact. The second mm-hmm. thing is, you know, you, you really want to decide, okay, do I want a two-piece golf ball? Do I want a three-piece golf ball? Uh, and really uh, 
for a higher handicap player, you can you can certainly play a two-piece uh, golf ball. There's a lot of great two-piece products out there that have oversized cores, a Serlin or an Ionomer cover. Uh, they come in a, a multitude of different colors and finishes these days. Typically, they have price ranges anywhere from 20 to $25 a dozen. And, uh, you know, the benefit is that two-piece golf balls simply don't spin as much as their three-piece counterpart. They don't feel quite as good as the three-piece counterpart. They're built typically, all two-piece golf balls are typically built as a distance product, and that's exactly what they uh, produce or provide to the player. Whereas a three-piece product, if you're, you know, you're starting to see some um, uh, encouraging signs with your game and you want to you wanna move into perhaps a slightly different type of product, I would encourage everybody to take a really hard look at three-piece Serlin or Ionomer products. There's a ton of them out there. You know, of course, our Vivid uh, and Crystal products uh, are both, you know, they have multitudes of color options in both. The Vivid is a matte finish. The, the Crystal is a glossy finish. You know, pick a color that you are comfortable with, uh, and that type of product is going to feel better for you. You're going to get some more control around the greens and shots into the green. And, uh, you know, so ultimately those are, I think, the, the foundational steps that, you know, players can take and look at when they're purchasing products and those three-piece products typically are going to go anywhere from $25 to $35 in terms of price. So, you know, what is it? It's, you know, maybe maybe somebody's paying a dollar more per ball, something like that. But, you know, over the course of, of playing 18 holes or whatever the benefit is, you know, if you, if you ask that guy at the end of the round uh, how well he hit a certain shot, and part of the benefit was because he was playing a three-piece ball over a two-piece ball, he'll pay the extra right. money every single time for the benefit that was achieved uh, because he went to, you know, a slightly better product than, uh, you know, perhaps a, a two-piece product provides. But ultimately, uh, I think that's where, again, from a foundation standpoint, a platform standpoint, that's really where people need to, to start from. When you're a more sophisticated player, that's where you really want to start looking at your club head speed with a driver. Typically, that's where you're going to measure it first. And then the other mm -hmm. place that you really want to work with on, a, on a, a super premium golf ball would be around the greens and on the green itself putting. Uh, you know, a lot of people get really dialed in because of the driver, but, you know, at the end of the day, you're only using that maybe 14 times during a round. Whereas the right. putter is going to come out every single hole. And, you know, even some of the, the best players in the world may only hit uh, 11 or 12 greens uh, in a round. So they're going to be grabbing a wedge and, uh, uh, you know, using their short game skills perhaps a third of the time during a round. And mm -hmm. let me tell you, if they can get that up and down uh, four or five times during a round, uh, you know, it's, it's it's the difference between making a cut and missing a cut. So there's a lot of things that go into 
going to that next level, you know, with the urethane and the more sophisticated types of products. Yeah, and, you know, this has been, I think, a lot of the confusion for so many golfers, and I thank you for for explaining a lot of it here tonight because this is an area, you know, I see – you know, people going into their local pro shop or, or store and, and, you know, just grabbing whatever they can get. And, you know, some are obviously a little more price conscious than others, and I get that. Um, but they're not really taking a lot of time and looking and, and, and studying what they really specifically need to be playing with. Um, and we see that, obviously, with equipment as well. We see a lot of people just buying stuff off the rack, and they're not really properly fitted. And then they're not getting the, the optimum be- benefit. So I think it's important that people realize that, you know, these are the tools that you're taking out under the golf course. You're taking your, your clubs, of course, is first and foremost, but you're also taking the golf ball out there. And if you're not playing a ball that's well-suited uh, for your game, then you're not going to get the maximum benefits out of it. And so, you know, this is why, you know, taking a few extra minutes, speaking to somebody that really understands that um, aspect of it with your pro and, and, and so forth um, it is going to help you in the long run. Like you said, it's the difference between playing a two-piece and a three-piece. Um, you know, there's Absolutely. benefits for both, right? There's benefits for both, but they're different. So understanding your game and, and knowing w- what the areas that you need the most help with is going to help you in that ball selection as well. Um, we mentioned the last time uh, you guys uh, collaborated with Disney, uh, particularly their, their Marvel uh, uh, characters and, and, and golf balls. And that, of course, at that time, that was earlier in the year, uh, has been wildly successful. Uh, give us an update. What's, uh, what's new on that end and what's, uh, what's coming out? I'm so glad you asked. I'll tell you what, uh, this is going to be one of the most exciting product launches uh, in the fourth quarter of this year that I think we've ever had, at least in, in uh, Volvic USA's history. And that's because we're building some real product critical mass around our licensing agreement with uh, the Marvel characters and Disney. And what we're doing is we're going to be adding uh, Marvel headwear, uh, Marvel ultralight stand bags, travel covers, umbrellas, uh, driver head covers. And so, you know, there's just a lot of different uh, product categories that we feel uh, consumers are, are going to really enjoy seeing the Marvel Avenger character of their choice uh, on some of these different product categories. And, and so we've mm-hmm. had a lot of fun putting it together. Uh, we think there's a great opportunity for us. You know, keep in mind, these guys never lose. So, you know, it's not like uh, my Chicago Bears – uh, or, you know, the <laughs> Chicago Cubs or any of those teams, you know, where, you know, once they get into June, uh, in the Cubs case, you know, it's, it's, they're in a sell-off situation. You know, the Avengers, the Marvel Avengers are undefeated. And right. so what's great about it is, is that we've, we've done a fantastic job, uh, especially our designers in Korea have come up with some great designs on our second-generation uh, golf ball gift sets. And then in addition to that, we've made that same application of these characters to some really great high-quality ultralight stand bags. And again, as I previously mentioned, headwear, uh, the travel covers, the umbrellas, et cetera. And so we're getting ready to launch all these products in October. Uh, we're super excited about it. Of course, 
you know, trying to get these products to market, uh, we, we really wanted to hit uh, third quarter, quite frankly. But, you know, just the, uh, unfortunately, the shipping issues that I think are impacting right. all business categories coming into the West Coast these days uh, has yeah. really kind of uh, held things back. But we're excited about getting it out for holiday we really think it's going to be uh, quite a bit of fun, and we're, we're looking forward to getting that, those those products to market. Well, I know from visiting your your website, um, you know, over the last little while, as, as I was preparing for tonight, and I got a look at, at obviously you have a great product line in general um, with with Volvic, but uh, particularly the the Marvel uh, stuff that's coming out is very very unique and very very different. Uh, you know, you've got the Black Widow and the Punisher. Uh, which is just uh, very, very, uh, and especially coming out in the fall season, uh, is going to, you know, just really, uh, really put it over the top. But um, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited for it. You know, see, this is what I like about, um, you know, when you see the industry, when you see leaders in the industry like Volvic uh, and, and your team that really, you know, sort of think forwardly in, in the in the game. You know, we always hear the, you know the the old famous buzzword growing the game and finding ways of of really reaching out to a new market and you know you and I talked about the last time uh, you know unfortunately we've all been going through this pandemic for the last year and a half plus and uh, it's been very very difficult for others but golf has been one of those areas in in many ways that um really has has I don't want to use the word prospered but actually has has fared very well and and out of that, with with not just the the regular folks coming out and being able to play, but there's been a lot of new people coming to the game which mm-hmm. have never played right. before. Doing right. what you guys are doing is is really addressing a new market uh, as well as the existing market because people are looking no for something different. And and you know yep. in in golf, um, you know you've got a big. You know, I'm of course in the baby boomer and whatnot range, but you know, you've got the millennials and you've got the Gen Zs coming up. They're looking for a different experience than what typically the country club experience. And so, a company like Volvic has to be um, leading the charge, if you will, with innovative products um, and certainly, uh, you know, keeping the the status quo at bay as well. But you've got to move forward. And I think you guys have, have really to quote a, a, a baseball vernacular, hit a home run with this Marvel uh, uh, partnership. And I think it's going to do extremely well. And I, I can tell that you're obviously excited about it, as I'm sure uh, the other uh, team members at Volvic are. No, no question about it, Ted. Now, and I'll, I'll say this, you know, as a, uh, there's a lot of uh, challenger brands in the golf industry. And, you know, the little challenger brands out there, uh, to really compete, uh, you, you're a basic requirement, a fundamental axiom for that type of business is that you have to be versatile, you have to be innovative, uh, you have to be creative, and mm-hmm. you have to be uh, willing to take some risk. And, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes you're going you're gonna to hit that home run, and sometimes you're not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you have to try, you know, you have to put yourself out there. You have to kind of go with your gut instinct sometimes. And that's what's, that's what's fun about this business. And that's what's exciting about it is that, you know, instinctively uh, perhaps because I've been in the industry for so long, uh, 
you know, I can just, I can look at some of these products and I just know it's going to be successful. Uh, and, you know, I'm fortunate because I've got two sons that both play. And mm-hmm. a lot of times I'll just reach out to them and I'll say, hey, what do you think? And they're like, oh, dad, that's, that's unbelievable. This is cool. And yep. as soon as I get that affirmation, it's like I know that, you know, that, that gut instinct is right. But you have to have uh, – you have to balance that visceral uh, – com- you know, and kind of combine it with, you know, what's the data? What's the metrics? What can we successfully take to market? What, what is a good approach for, you know, our brand may not necessarily be the correct approach for another brand. But certainly right. uh, for Volvic to be successful, let's put it this way, uh, you know, we have to definitely check the box next to high performance. We have to check the box next to quality. We have to check the box next to innovation. And we definitely have to check the box uh, next to things that are going to be slightly different uh, and not just like what everybody else is doing. And, and I think that's really the key to, you know, our, not only our current success, but certainly our long-term success. And as you so yeah, aptly put it, and, and I think <laughs> Go you're ahead. dead on, Ted, there's so many new players that have entered mm-hmm. the game. Uh, there's so many uh, fresh faces out there. You know, we, we talked last time about, uh, all the box set wrappers uh, that were stuffed into garbage cans at the golf course parking lots. Uh, right. People literally going from their local retail store right out to the golf course and, and uh, you know, taking it, taking it to the practice tee or taking it to the course itself. There's a mm-hmm. ton of new players and, you know, they're excited about it and they're having a lot of fun with it. And so, you know, clearly we want to make sure that we identify with them in addition to, you know, that core consumer, that, that, that player that's been out there playing for a while. I think the real key to it, and you're exactly right, uh, Wes, I think the real key to golf moving forward is appealing to, you know, for a long, long time we had uh, a certain generation, again, that baby boomer generation and before, that sort of remained the status quo um, for a long, long time. And, you know, that was fine, served uh, certainly served the industry very well. Um, but what I'm seeing now in the industry with the next generations coming up is, uh, again, as you point out, wanting to take more risk. They're looking to be more innovative and, and they're looking at, you know, I look at some of the, even the outfits of, of some of the players coming out today. And even though it's in a different design, it, it goes, it's almost a throwback to this, you know, to the seventies where, you know, these wild colors sure. and, and outfits and things like that, again, a, a more modern flair to it, but it's the same thing. Um, you know, the, the generations coming up now don't have a problem walking down the street, looking a certain way because it's all about the individuality. So markets and, and businesses like Volvic and others out there have to be willing to move along with them. Otherwise, they stagnate and they just fall by the wayside and you know become a dinosaur and die out. So I like what really, and, and I'm really, really very excited, and I said this to you the last time, and I said it to you privately when we talked off air, I really like the direction that you guys have taken with your marketing and, and with the approach and with the product line because it is very forward in our industry. Um, and this is why I think you guys are 
particularly you know in all aspects but with the women's market particularly and the overseas market as well um have really um you know been able to tap in um with with a, a great amount of ease because i think people recognize really what it is that you're trying to do um and that is to be different is to be something that's different than what traditionally golf sees day in day out um and i think that's why your products do extremely well and obviously not taking away from the performance, but again, th- there has to be a visual component to it as well because that's what people are looking at, that golf ball for 18 holes. And, uh, you know, it, it's exciting when you've got something that's, that's uh, you know, got some color and got some technology behind it that's helping you to improve your game um, also has to be visually appealing. And you guys have, have hit it out of, the, out of the park, as I said, and I'm excited to see uh, how uh, the Marvel product uh, component to it uh, goes that much further as well. So kudos to you and your team. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. And you know, we're we're excited about the critical mass that we're we're building around this Marvel uh, stable of products, and you know, we're going to continue to expand that. And you know, likewise, we're on the threshold of of launching some exciting new products in the uh, Volvic uh, side of things, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, really what we've become is almost two brands in one, right? So even though all right. the, the Marvel branded goods or logoed goods, I should say, are Volvic branded products, it's almost as if we've, we have a Marvel brand now uh, with all these new exciting uh, products and, and product categories covered with it. And then we have Volvic, and so we're, we're entering – a key uh, period of time where we're once again getting ready to uh, launch the 2022 product line. And so we'll be uh, producing, you know, a a brand new uh, series of urethane products that we're getting ready to launch. And that should be on store shelves uh, in January. Uh, We're going to be launching a brand new Vivid. We're going to be launching a brand new Crystal. And so we're, you know, clearly we're excited about that. We're excited to see how the uh, performance of these products are going to stack up, not only uh, against the competition, but how the consumer receives them and the benefits they receive from playing our products. Uh, but, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're looking forward to that. It's always fun for somebody in sales, uh, you know, selfishly, to launch right. new products, you know, it's, that's the fun sure. part of our job, right? And so, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's a thrill behind uh, getting the new products on the shelf, the new packaging, uh, you know, talk about the new, uh, the new stake behind the sizzle, so to speak. And uh, right. so we're going to have a lot of fun as we, we move into uh, the new year. But, you know, the last uh, 12 months have been so interesting, especially for a veteran of the industry like myself, uh, because of all the complexities of this pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So, you know, how we manage our business, uh, how we've launched products, uh, some of the things that have happened with the logistics piece of products coming uh, from Asia, uh, not just in golf, but across all industries. Uh, you know, all these things have, have really been kind of a fascinating aspect of, uh, of what we've had to go through. And, uh, you know, I, at the end of the day, the consumer that walks into their local retail or pro shop 
and is uh, uh, picking up a, a dozen golf balls or a new driver or, you know, testing out a putter, they don't, you know, that's that's buzz in the background and they probably don't even, they, they may not even be aware of it at all, and nor should they. Uh, but, you know, for somebody who's in the industry, uh, you know, we've, we've gone through so many different changes over these last 12 months that uh, have really been uh, fascinating. And, you know, we had this mm-hmm. slow drip, drip, drip of particip- declines in participation, decline in rounds played, and then boom, uh, a pandemic hits. And in May of last year, it's like uh, uh, somebody shot uh, 500,000 players out of a cannon and sprinkled them over right. golf courses uh, all over the country. And uh, rounds jumped to almost unheard of levels in terms of participation mm-hmm. rates and rounds played. And the ensuing demand for product went right along with it. And as you know, last September, uh, the industry had one of the biggest months uh, that uh, the industry's ever had in its history. So, yep. you know, it's it's again, you know, as a as a veteran of the industry and, and just kind of looking at this over a, a 40-year uh, period of time, I don't think I've ever witnessed uh, the ups and downs uh, like we have certainly over the last 12 months. And, and you know what, at the end of the day, uh, it's been really rewarding. Yeah, it has in so many levels and in so many areas of uh, of the golf industry. And I hope that they, you know, really learn from this, you know, and, and not just look at it as, okay, we've had a, a major bump in, in the industry overall, and let's ride the wave. And then when the ra- wave, you know, uh, subsides a little bit, that we just sort of go back to the status quo. I think this has been an opportunity for the industry to say, you know what, we need to start moving in in, in new directions and not just, uh, you know, cater to the typical everyday golfer. I mean, we certainly got to adhere to to what they want as well, but I think we've got a new opportunity here to bring in new golfers and new clientele into the fold that have never been here before, and we want to make sure that there's something here for them. And that's why companies like Top Golf and and some of these other areas that have catered more to the entertainment side of, of the business um, have done so well as, uh, you know, in addition to, to some of the traditional uh, venues and, and so forth and companies. So there's a lot of opportunity here for everybody. You guys have certainly, um, I consider a, a leader in, in what you're doing and in your uh, field of expertise. And I, I wish you guys much continued success and hopefully, uh, you know, we can do some things uh, moving forward to, uh, you know, work together and so forth. And I'm always happy, Wes, to have you on the program. And it's always interesting and exciting to hear what's going on. And I'm really, really uh, looking forward to uh, to seeing uh, uh, what's coming out here, uh, not as we just move into the later part of this year, but what comes out for 2022 as well. So keep me posted. You're welcome to come back. And uh, just for those tuning into the show, now if you want to check out some of the things that we were talking about tonight, uh, you can go to volvic.com. That's their uh, official website, and it's V-O-L-V-I-K.com. And all of the uh, products and, and some of the different things that they're doing, uh, you'll find some information on their website there. But Wes, as always, thank you very, very much for joining me tonight on Golf Talk Live. It's been a pleasure, and I look forward to you coming back and spending some time with me again on a future show. Ted, thanks so much for having me on. It was, it was a lot of fun. Really appreciate it. I appreciate it as well. Take care, my friend. I'll uh, talk to you real soon, and uh, have a great weekend. You do the same.
Thanks again. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. All right. That was uh, Wes Whittingham, Vice President of Sales for Volvic USA. And uh, again, you can go to volvic.com. You can check out a lot of their great products there, uh, not just the golf balls, but some of the accessories that they, they have. And, and again, you can uh, see what we were talking about uh, as far as their collaboration with Marvel. You'll see some of the great products that are coming out uh, this fall. Um, on that note, um, thank you guys for tuning in uh, again to another uh, show. I hope you enjoyed it. And thank you particularly uh, to John Decker and Jamie Leno Zimron uh, for joining me earlier on the Coach's Corner panel. I think we had a pretty good discussion tonight. Hopefully you guys learned something from it. Uh, and if you're tuning in a little bit later in the broadcast and you missed that, uh, best way to go and catch uh, tonight's broadcast and any of the previously aired ones is go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live and just scroll down to the on-demand section and tonight's show will be there front and center in just a few moments. Uh, but there's some other great episodes, too, that in case you've missed uh, some earlier uh, guests. So thanks again. Have a great weekend. God bless. And we'll see you next time right here on Golf Talk Live. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's broadcast of Golf Talk Live. We'd like to thank this week's Coach's Corner panel and a special thank you to tonight's guest. Remember to join Ted every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Central on Golf Talk Live. And be sure to follow Ted on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you're interested in being a guest on Golf Talk Live, send Ted an email at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network.